Welcome to the Engaged Midwife Podcast. This is Kara. And I'm Missy. And what are we going to talk about today, Missy? Today's topic is all the things, it'll be all the emotions for me, because we're going to talk about breast cancer and breast cancer screening and how we talk to patients about their breasts. And I'm dedicating this podcast to my friend, Chelsea, who we lost a few years ago at a too young of an age. Cancer is always a thief of time. It is. But also um, she left an amazing legacy. So this one's for you, Chelsea. And um, let's talk about breast cancer screening. Okay. So I think this is um, obviously a topic that is important for students and practicing midwives and is something to know for certification exam and so forth. But it's also just important to all of us so that we have a good understanding for our own healthcare as well as taking care of patients. And there's a lot of emotion tied up in it oftentimes. I also think that there are a lot, of, there's a lot of conflicting information. Well, so unfortunately, I think this is one of the biggest areas of where we have so many different guidelines and recommendations from different entities. And it can be really, really confusing. Everybody's got an opinion. They do. And so um, the what I've chosen for myself is different than what many women choose for themselves and how we talk to patients and inform them and how we understand it ourselves is really, really important. But we can take a look at the evidence and we can take a look at why people recommend the different things that they do. This is an important aside because like you just said, you and I do something totally different in terms of our breast health management. Yeah. And, but there are other parts of our healthcare that we also do. Like it's what we pick and choose. I feel like to be afraid of or be cautious of, or to make sure that we always have a screening. Like I do not relish the idea of needing a colonoscopy every five or 10 years. I do not love that idea. Um, (laughs) It might be one of those things that I'm like, which set of screening guidelines fits my desire to not do this every 10 years? Right, right. (laughs) So it's funny. And the reason I bring it up is because as you're talking to patients, I think it's important to understand what their goals are, what they're afraid of, what's their risk what is in their family. We were just talking about this. Like there's no cancer in my family. People don't get cancer and die. They die of other things. So my cholesterol, my blood pressure are way more concerning to me than cancer kinds of things. Sure. Sure. I mean, I don't live a lifestyle where I'm predisposed to cancer and I don't have a lot of genetic factors. Well, so you bring up a really good point and something we should definitely hit on about evidence-based practice. And so when people think about evidence-based practice and they think about the levels of evidence out there and so forth, you know, they oftentimes think about the meta-analysis and the synthesis, um, systematic reviews and randomized controlled trials, and they work their way down through observational studies and we get to expert opinion and, and anecdotal information, but we can't forget that patient desire and patient choice is a part of evidence-based practice. And I'm really glad you hit on that because we're both, you and I, very informed consumers of our own healthcare And you're right, we do choose different things. And we look at the evidence similarly, but what fits for our lives is a little bit different. Right, right. I will say like going into this, 
because I know you're going to talk about what to do for women under 40. Yes. I was one of those women who was 35 and I was like, I'm having a screening mammogram right now because I want everybody from now till forever in all time and place to know what my breasts look like when I was 35 years old. Okay. And I did that thing and I, and nothing was wrong and everything was fine. And I'm like, okay, cool. And now we can even talk about women over 40 and as a 48 year old woman, I've never had a mammogram or imaging done of my breasts and I'm following guidelines as well, but you're right. We've chosen different things. So how many sets of guidelines are there, Kara? Well, I mean, there's, there's quite a few. I generally will talk about the United States Preventative Services Task Force, which we lovingly call USPSTF. Yeah. So if you hear us randomly like rattle off a bunch of letters, that's what that is. And then generally, I also talk about the American Cancer Society and ACOG because oftentimes we think of those three entities as like the big players in breast health and being interested in levels of evidence. But we also do have recommendations that come to us from the American Academy of Family Physicians and the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. So, um, three to five different organizations that have all put out readily available published recommendations and guidelines. But we have the big three. Big ooh, three. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> like uh, this is us. Oh goodness. The big three. Yeah. All right. So let's, we're really talking about screening, right? So we're talking about asymptomatic patients that don't have an identified lump, breast pain, nipple discharge, any of that. They're literally just asymptomatic. And we're talking about screening for breast cancer. And so I think it's helpful to think about breast self-exam or self-breast exam, clinical breast exam, and then imaging. Right. Okay. So the interesting thing is that there are no organizations currently that recommend breast self-exams or self-breast exams monthly. There are quite a few organizations that talk about it is a good idea for patients to know breast self-awareness. What do my breasts feel like normally? And can I identify if there's a change in them? But I don't need to do this systematic exam every month and feel guilty every time my provider asks me if I'm doing it. And the answer is no. There is more harm that can come from overreacting to very normal breast tissue. And so we don't have any evidence to support clinical or self-breast exams. Also, it's a really hard thing to teach, like how to do self-breast exam. Everybody's breasts feel different. Yes. Everybody has different like tissue and structure. And some people have fibrocystic breasts. It's just a really difficult thing to help people understand their own breast and how to do a really effective exam. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know. We're going to talk about clinical breast exams in a minute, but when I used to have patients in the office and I was doing clinical breast exams, I oftentimes would say, you know, you can go home this afternoon or this evening and do an exam because what I'm feeling feels like very healthy tissue. And so if this was what you're feeling normally, then you can be pretty reassured that that is your normal breast tissue. Agreed. Okay. So clinical breast exams. Dun, dun, dun. Here's where we start to get some differing opinions. Overall, overall, most of the organizations will say that clinical breast exams are not recommended. Is that shocking? 
Is that new information for some people? I think it might be. It probably is. Yeah. I know a lot of practitioners who are still doing clinical breast exams on every patient. They also, I think we so often get used to doing them. And then we think that patients expect them from us because if you, if they come into your office and you're not necessarily doing a pelvic exam and you don't do a breast exam, they're going to wonder what the heck we're doing. But the American Cancer Society does not recommend clinical breast exams. The USPSTF says that there's insufficient evidence to recommend for or against. So again, not recommending them, but not saying you absolutely can't do them. Um, The ACOG is saying that they could be offered for women that are 40 and older annually and every one to three years for women 25 to 39. So every one to three years in the 20s and 30s and then yearly after age 40, but they can be offered, not required. Um, the American Academy of Family Physicians does recommend clinical breast exams, but doesn't recommend self-breast exams. And then the National Comprehensive Cancer Network does recommend annually for women 40 years and older. So we've got the whole gamut there from organizations that recommend them yearly to organizations that say we cannot recommend them. So kind of all over the place. Yeah, I I think the two for students who are listening, this might not be a skill that you're really learning right? anymore, depending on who your preceptor is. Yeah. So that may also affect your practice and your feeling of being competent in doing a clinical breast exam. Right. Right. Um, I think, and as you, I, we'll finish the screening and then I think we should talk more maybe about um, complaints that people come in and what, why we would do targeted things for that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great idea. So we've talked about self breast exams and clinical breast exams. So the next big issue is imaging. And when we think about imaging, we're usually talking about the mammogram as the gold standard imaging for breast tissue. Um, occasionally people will talk about ultrasound, particularly in younger patients, but it usually includes a mammogram with additional imaging with ultrasound if necessary. And sometimes people will talk about MRIs, but for screening purposes alone, MRIs are not recommended. Yeah. I think there's a, a, the next part of that conversation will be talking more about diagnostic things. Yes. But again, this goes back to the whole conversation that we have in a lot of our podcasts, which is understanding the differences between screening and diagnostic Yes. Um, kinds of testing. And so we're still working here on what we do for screening. So we're going to break down our discussion about imaging and use of mammograms by age group. And so across the board for individuals less than 40 years of age, none of the organizations clearly state that we should be doing imaging routinely. They, um, American Cancer Society says that we should individualize the screening and use shared decision-making yearly. Um, USPSCF says that we should individualize, which is also, again, really nice thinking about patient-centered care. And then ACOG has no recommendation either way for people that are less than 40 years of age. The American Academy of Family Physicians and the National Comprehensive Cancer Network don't address it at all. So then we start to get into age 40, and that's when most organizations will start to have some recommendations. So American Cancer Society says for women in their fifth decade of life, 40 to 49, that we should offer yearly mammograms. And for AC for ACS, American Cancer Society, 
that goes through, they want you to continue your, once you start at 40, they would like for you to continue pretty much for the rest of your life. They do talk about once you reach age 50, you could think about every two years, but yes, you're right. They do talk about starting at age 40 and going through end of life, as long as there is a reasonable expectation for life expectancy continuing. Right. Every one to two years. Yes. So let's jump next because I want to save USPSCF. Let's jump next to ACOG. And they say that for average risk women, so the average woman that doesn't have a significant cancer history, breast cancer history in her family, so forth, that starting at age 40, they should be offered a mammogram and screened yearly or every two years in that 40 to 49 age group. Once they reach age 50, they do say that um, if they haven't started screening yet, they should definitely do so by age 50. And then that you could use shared decision-making after age 75, kind of deciding on what is the likelihood that the patient will um, have a life expectancy of several years. Um trying to say like risk benefit, like if they have a lot of comorbidities and aren't likely to survive those, is there really a reason that we need to be screening for breast cancer? So it's safe to say for ACOG, they would like you to start every year or every other year at 40. Yes. But if you haven't done that at 50, you should start at 50. Definitely start by 50. And that you may stop at 75. Yes. Yep. You got it. Um, a, the American Academy of Family Physicians says every two years in the 40s and continuing with every two years, they do talk about um, that they can also stop screening at 75. So American Academy of Family Physicians sort of goes along with loosely with what ACOG says. Agreed. Agreed. And then the National Comprehensive Cancer Network talks about starting at age 40 and doing them annually. And then they don't really talk about anything different in the 50 to 75. So continuing them yearly is how I interpret that recommendation. And that you could stop mammograms when severe morbidities limit life expectancy to 10 years or less. So annual mammograms starting at age 40 go until life expectancy is less than 10 years. So the big one that's different. USPSTF. USPSTF. So they do talk about from age 40 to 49 years that the decision to be screened should be individualized. So we can offer it, but we don't necessarily have to recommend it to those patients. Um, And that the individual can decide for themselves whether or not they want to start at age 40 and have any mammogram screening during that decade. Once we get to age 50, they do talk about every two year screening up to age 74 or 75. And then they don't have a recommendation after that. Okay. So it's not, I mean, I guess I should say it's not vastly different. It's just a different starting age. Also, it sounds like by the time I'm 75, I don't have to do anything with my breasts anymore if I don't want to. That's true. And I remember having a conversation recently with my aunt who, um, Well, actually, we started having the conversation about five years ago. She just passed away at age 80, but um, she got really upset with me because I said, I think you can stop doing mammograms. And she was like, well, why? And I'm like, well, if your life expectancy is less than 10 years, I don't think you need to continue them. And she did not like hearing that from me. Now, I wish I hadn't been right, 
um, about her life expectancy, but she wasn't a super healthy person. And so um, there's not really a reason that she needed to continue them. I just want to bring up an interesting point about screening, because I will tell you, and this is something that I hear a lot in, in offices, which is, well, your insurance company will cover it. I will say a lot of people dictate their decisions about what they're doing in healthcare by what their insurance covers. I knew my insurance co- would cover me to have a screening mammogram between 35 and 40. Mm-hmm. So I did that thing, sure, right? Sure. Also, insurance companies, not so much now, but five years ago, we're still paying for women to have a pop smear every year, even though that wasn't the guideline. Right. I think insurance companies are getting more in line with the guidelines in terms of what they're paying for. But a lot of women will be like, hey, my insurance company is going to pay for it. I'm going to do it. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that so many times I even hear from students because I really push back a lot on just because we have a test available doesn't necessarily mean that we need to use it and that there can be harms that come from the overuse of screening tools. And so um, you're you're 100% right that people think, well, if it'll be paid for and it's available, I should do it. And I think we just need to be clear and have really, truly informed consent. I agree with that. So can we talk about risk factors for a second? Because I know that risk goes into why you would screen people. Sure. So I know that there are some tools that we can use for risk assessment. There are. So um, one of the things that you can look at is the breast cancer risk assessment tool is validated to assess breast cancer risk for Hispanic, Black, White, Asian, and Pacific Islander women in the United States. And it's pretty readily available and um, accurate. Now, one of the caveats with that is if patients have had um, uh, increased risk because of BRCA1 or 2, then it's not as valid as a tool. But the breast cancer risk assessment tool is something that's out there and available. The other one that I've heard a fair amount of is the Gale model. And you can also pretty easily find it available as an app or even available in a quick Google search um, online. And you could put in patient information and determine their risk factors based on the Gale model. You know what, Kara? There's an app for that. There's an app for that. She stole my line. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Well, maybe I've just learned really well from you over the years. Yeah. So there are a lot of different apps that have these validated tools built into them. And so I just want to be sure that everybody knows that their device, their smart device likely has a tool in it that will help you make decisions. Yeah. But again, other things go into risk, right? Age, family history, like you were talking about BRCA1 and 2 gene mutations, um, reproductive risk factors. So there are some things, right? Never having been pregnant. Yes. So there is differentiation of breast tissue that happens at pregnancy and then further differentiation of tissue that happens after delivery. And so those things also lead into breast cancer risk. Also early menarche and late menopause. And I think it likely has something to lifetime exposure to estrogen. Estrogen. So there are some stuff that's tricky stuff. It is those hormones, those dang hormones. So there are some different definite risk factors. I think some of the ones that are kind of interesting are those modifiable. We can't, we can't change our age. But stop smoking. We can't change our family members. I mean, sometimes we wish. And we can't 
necessarily decide our reproductive life based on avoiding breast cancer. Right. But we could lose weight. We could eat better and we could quit smoking. Smoking smoking is bad for everything. And by we, I mean me. I've never smoked, thankfully, but um, some of those other things I could definitely work on. Yeah. Okay. I hear you. So let's talk a little bit about, we talked about screening. So I just want to talk more about diagnostic testing because I think it's really important for people to understand what truly is diagnostic. It's like when we talk about pap smears, right? People are like a colposcopy is diagnostic. No, the colposcopy is not diagnostic. The word colpo means cervix. Oscopy means to look at. A colposcopy is really just to look at the cervix. Right. The diagnostic test is the biopsy that goes along with the colposcopy. So when we talk about breast cancer, we've done a screening mammogram, right? Right. Or, but we can do ultrasound, diagnostic ultrasound. Yes. Diagnostic mammogram. Yes. But the true diagnosis, diagnostic test is biopsy. It is. It's fine needle aspiration most of the time. Or they, they sometimes will go in and do a partial lumpectomy if they, right. if they don't have a good sense of what the breast tissue is, if the mass is made of. Correct. So I just think it's important to know, like w- when you're looking at something diagnostic and honestly, in the roles that we're in as midwives, this is going to be at a place where we're going to start referring and collaborating people out of our practice. When I have needed to order diagnostic imaging, meaning a diagnostic mammogram, a diagnostic ultrasound, a breast surgery consult, something along those lines, it is because a patient has come in with an identifiable mass. It's because they've come in with a significant pain or breast tissue change. It's because they've had nipple discharge and we don't find necessarily like a um, hormonal aberration. It's more so been, and most commonly been a mass that they've identified themselves. Breast cancer for me as a practitioner is one of the scariest things that people come in with complaints of Mm -hmm. breast things. Right. Um, I feel really confident about abnormal uterine bleeding. I feel really confident about abnormal paps, all the things. Give me a good STI. Easy. Vaginitis all day long. Even I'll take menopause over breast things. Oh, I think I would even agree. And I don't (laughs) like menopause. No, but breast things for me, because here's what happens. Women look in the mirror and they see skin changes. They see dimpling. They have unilateral breast discharge, which unilateral is bad. Right. Right. If you're going to breast discharge, you want it from both sides. You don't want it just on one side. Um, They notice a lump. They notice a lump when they're breastfeeding that you can't attribute to something. Um, There is definitely something that they're coming in like, this thing is freaking me out. Well, there's anxiety to it that they bring. And then you also will have anxiety about it as well. Typically, I can vividly recall several instances where during the exam, I felt like my stomach hit the floor because I just knew as soon as I touched the lump, what was going on. So quickly, because this is not a podcast about diagnostic, like it is and about a no. physical exam. But generally when I talk to women about breast things, I'm like, if it's hard and fixed to the underlying tissue, meaning it doesn't move around, and painless and doesn't hurt. That's a bad sign. Yes. And so when I, those are the first questions I ask, like, does it hurt? 
Does it come and go? Is it rubbery? Is it mobile? Like it's those bouncy and mobile. Great. I'll yeah. take bouncy and mobile all day long. Yes. I do not want hard and fixed and painless. And irregular edges. No. Yeah. Or I really don't like things that are under a nipple. Like near a nipple also for me is like, oh, yeah. So, I mean, again, this is one of the things that I would love to avoid for the rest of my life is right. ever having to deal with breast complaints. But, but it's one of the things that you want to take seriously. Yes. Um, also, we're doing such a good job, I think, where we are with healthcare in 2022 with understanding like how we screen, we're picking it up when women are young, we're doing a good job of educating women about their breasts. So I think the take home message for me about some of these things that have to do with breasts is, do you, can you do a good job of helping women understand their breasts? Yes. When to come in, when to be screened, when to be um, rightfully concerned Sure. versus I have fibrocystic changes and I need to stop drinking as much caffeine as I do. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, and understanding risk factors. I think risk factors are super important. First degree relatives, man, if you've got a first degree relative who has breast cancer, who's died of breast cancer, risk. And it also some of the other related cancers. So if other people in your family have had ovarian cancer, even some colon cancer, there are some cancer syndromes that we should be concerned about as well. One of the things that you, as you were talking that I want to make sure that we hit on is that there are some things that we can help teach our patients that are important when we think about screening mammograms. So if you can go back to the same imaging place year after year, or each time you have imaging done and they can refer to your previous images, that is so helpful to the radiologist that's reading your images. The other thing is that what we know about breast density has changed over the years. And there's even state laws that are different from state to state on reporting to individual patients what their breast density is. And if we recommend additional imaging, like with ultrasound or something else, because the patient has super dense breasts. I also like the anticipatory guidance of telling my patients what's going to happen when they go for their mammogram and being a 50 side of 40 girl and who has done screening mammogram every year. I have a, I can share, you know, what I know is happening. Also, you know, what happens if you have breast implants? What happens if you have large breasts? This is a thing, right? Where every year I'm afraid because they come in and take all these extra images. Mm -hmm. And I, it, you know, I have, I always want to say low level anxiety, but I don't really think it's low level. I just have anxiety about things. And when they come in and say, oh, we just need to get five more images. I'm like, but why? Right. But why? Um, so also understanding that just like with anything else, the people who are doing your tests aren't, can't tell you a thing. Like they are not supposed to, they are not allowed to, you cannot expect them to. So having people go into a screening mammogram, understanding that they may come for extra images that they're probably not going to tell you what they see or don't see. It's going to be a situation where you have to wait for your provider. Those things I think are good, a good way for you to educate your patient about what this is going to look like. And just like with any other screening that we do, we need to have good follow-up of results. And so if your patient seeks the imaging and does the screening, you need to be sure that your 
practice yourself that you have a mechanism for following up any results so that you don't have a misdiagnosis because you're right, Missy, this is an area that can be super risky and litigious in that you don't want to have a misdiagnosis. That, and I, I, you just don't want to miss something and then have it be like a widespread, you know, go from being something that would have been, you know, an easy stage one lumpectomy. And then as you know, now into someone's lymph nodes and is, you know, much further staged. Yeah. So I hope this conversation has been really helpful for people. Hopefully it's been a nice little review. Um, We may have complicated it even further beyond the big three, but um, I think it was good to have this review and it's helped me even in thinking about my own screening decisions. So helpful. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Engage Midwife podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Missy, for sharing about your friend, Chelsea. Take care. Mm -hmm.